You're listening to the Jesus for Everyone podcast. To support this podcast, go to RenewedHeartMinistries.com and click Donate. And why is the path so narrow? It's narrow simply because it's traversed by so very so few. Uh, Paths are broad or narrow, determined by the number of those who travel them. This is Herb Montgomery with Renewed Heart Ministries, and I want to welcome you to episode 216 of the Jesus for Everyone podcast. Our saying this week is, I do not know you. Our feature text is Sang's Gospel Q, 13, 24 through 27. Enter through the narrow door, for many will seek to enter, and few are those who enter through it. When the householder has arisen and locked the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Master, open for us, and he will answer you, I do not know you. Then you will begin saying, We ate in your presence and drank, and it was in our streets that you taught. And he will say to you, I do not know you. Get away from me, you who do lawlessness. Our companion text, our Gospel of Matthew 7, 13-14, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Matthew 7, 22-23, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Matthew 25, 10 through 12. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived and the virgins who were ready to ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. And later the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I do not know you. And Luke 13, 24 through 27, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door to us. But he will answer, I don't know you, nor do I know where you come from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you and where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. In this week's saying, um, we're brought to the imagery of, of, of the straight and narrow. And typically this saying is, is read in relation to a, a post-mortem, divinely imposed reward or punishment. But I'm going to ask you to read it instead in a more immediate cultural context of the destruction in 70 CE that, that Jesus saw looming on Jerusalem's horizon. And we've discussed this at length, pre- at length previously, and I'll, I'll give you a, a, a link in this e-site this week to to some of those uh, places where we have discussed this. As the elites rejected Jesus' call for debt cancellation and wealth redistribution, the exploitation of the poor continued to increase. The rich became richer, the poor became poorer. The poor also rejected Jesus' nonviolent forms of resistance and protest, and, and they eventually initiated an uprising, and we've again, we've spoken about this in the past, an uprising against the temple and, and, and Rome's occupation. Their uprising became the the Jewish-Roman War of 66 to 69 CE, and this eventually resulted in Rome's violent backlash against Jerusalem, where there was nothing left for anyone, uh, rich or poor alike. And when we recognize that context, our, our saying this week takes on a different taste. Jesus had witnessed many violent revolutions and revolutionaries 
come to the, he'd watched them come to a, a violent destruction because of Roman backlash. And history also tells us of of many cultures where inequalities became so economic inequalities, especially became so extreme uh, through exploitation that they imploded and their societies were destroyed. They they kind of self destructed. And this we know was how Rome's empire also eventually fell too. So it's not too far-fetched to imagine this in a Jewish context. History teaches us that violent revolutions are typically embraced by the many and, and they end in more costly consequences. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. Um, but they're, they're, the, the cost of failure is greater with violent revolutions. And, and exploitative societies, uh, the way of domination and subjugation, they also have been common. and It's the way of the many. And such societies, as we just said, they also have a kind of a self-created expiration date. They too um, typically implode on their own. And by contrast, there have been few revolutionaries throughout history, comparatively, who have chosen nonviolent forms of resistance and change. And there, there have been few societies that have genuinely embraced egalitarianism or, or a distributive justice that produces life and peace for everyone. And few societies and communities have genuinely embraced the way of abundance and sharing where each person contributes Acts 11.29 according to their ability. And, and then the resources are Acts 4.35 and 2.45 distributed according to, to everybody's need. And our saying this week Jesus is speaking about the realities of life in this world. When he's talking about a path that many follow or a path that few follow, that's just the way it's worked out historically. Once again, he, he's calling his fellow impoverished Jews to a form of resistance that I believe gave them the greatest chances of survival in their attempted liberation. He also called those at the helm of their economically oppressive society to a, a Torah-style jubilee where all the debts would be canceled and the, the wealth of their society would be radically redistributed. And you can see that in Luke 19, 1 through 9, Luke 12, 33, Luke 18, 22, and Mark 10, 21. And and let's talk about first that that the the value um, uh, of failure cost, how the failure cost between violent revolutions and nonviolent revolutions, how they vary. Let's talk about that first. In Walter Wink's Jesus and Nonviolence: A Third Way, Wink compares the cost of failure for violent revolutions, and then he compares that with nonviolent revolution, nonviolent ones. And both kinds of revolutions, they have histories of success. Um, uh, like the violent American Revolution that, that many American citizens celebrate each 4th of July. And there are also successful nonviolent revolutions, and some of them are, are documented in the film. It's a documentary I'll recommend this week. I'll give you a link to its website, A Force More Powerful, if uh, you want examples of nonviolent revolutions that have been successful. Um, that's a great documentary to check out. But our saying this week is about the cost of failure for both forms of revolutionary resistance. Walter Wink, once again, he writes, once we determine that Jesus's third way is not a perfectionist avoidance of violence, but a creative struggle to restore the humanity of all parties in a dispute, the legalism that surrounds this issue becomes unnecessary. We cannot sit in judgment 
over the responses of others to their oppression. Gandhi continually reiterated that if a person could not act nonviolently in a situation, violence was preferable to submission. Where there is only a choice between cowardice and violence, I would advise violence. That's Gandhi's quote. But Gandhi believed that a third way can always be found if one is deeply committed to nonviolence. Jesus' nonviolent form of resistance means voluntarily taking on the violence of the powers that be, and that will mean casualties, but they will be nowhere near the scale that would result from violent revolution. We need to be very clear that it is in the interest of the powers to make people believe that nonviolence doesn't work. To that end, they create a double standard. If a single case can be shown where nonviolence doesn't work, nonviolence as a whole can then be discredited. No such rigorous standard is applied to violence, however, which regularly fails to achieve its goals. Close to two-thirds of all governments that assume power by means of coups are ousted by the same means. Only one in 20 post-coup governments give way to a civil government. The issue, however, is not just which works better, but also which fails better. And this is that rate of failure. While a nonviolent strategy also does not always work in terms of the present goals, though in another sense it always works, at least the casualties and the destruction are far less severe. I do not believe that the churches can adequately atone for their past inaction simply by baptizing revolutionary violence under the pretext of just war theory. No war today could be called just, given the inevitable level of casualties and atrocities. Nonviolent revolutions sometimes happen by accident. They are usually more effective, however, when they are carefully prepared by grassroots training, discipline, organizing, and hard work. Training because we need to know how to deal with police riots, how to develop creative strategies, how to diffuse potentially violent eruptions. Discipline, because all too often agent provocateurs are planted in peace groups whose task is to try to stir up violence. So we need to know how to neutralize people we suspect by their actions to be such agents. Organize so as to create affinity groups that can act in concert, be able to identify by name every person in the cluster, and develop esprit de corps. And all that is hard work. But also, and this is heavily a guarded secret, nonviolent action in concert can be one of the most rewarding and sometimes fun activities available to human beings. That's chapter four of Walter Wink's book, Jesus and Nonviolence, A Third Way. I believe that Jesus, this in this week's saying, he... he what, what he's referring to, he was trying to engage the work of survival and the work of liberation in a creative nonviolent form. In other words, he could foresee that if you used violence against Roman occupation, the, the cost of failure to that would be too great. If you tried nonviolent forms of resistance, it provided the best chances uh, for them to enjoy, or to survive, rather, in long enough to enjoy their liberation. So it was that tension of, of wanting to work towards liberation, but also wanting to engage in the work of surviving, um, the survival and liberation, the tension between those two, that Jesus was teaching nonviolence. And this week's saying, again, is talking about how few uh, on the undersides of society would choose that. And, and let's talk about the other side of society, on the upper side of society. 
Debt forgiveness and wealth redistribution, that, that wasn't a popular uh, message on that side either. At the heart of Jesus's economic path for that side of society, um, which again, few societies find this path, it's, it's the Jewish Torah's uh, and the Hebrew prophets call to a distributive justice where inequality is seen as an intrinsic social harm. Inequality is not seen as a good thing, but a negative thing. And debt forgiveness and, and support for the poor, um, th- th- those make better societies, but few societies have practiced either one of those. There are a multitude, though, of societies, much like America today, where wealth inequality has become so extreme that it's ultimately, these societies ultimately um, are destroyed by by the extremity, by the distance between the haves and the have-nots. These these, uh, societies are destroyed from within. And, And just like the saying says, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. Aristotle um, he saw this in his own day, time and, and, and place, in his own day. He, he wrote in the book uh, Politics, and this is book six, chapter five, poverty is the cause of the defects of democracy. That is the reason why measures should be taken to ensure a permanent level of prosperity. And he means that for everyone, where there's not winners or losers. It's a win-win situation. This is in the interest of all classes, including the prosperous themselves. And therefore, the proper policy is to accumulate any surplus revenue in a fund and then to distribute this fund in block grants to the poor. In his new book, uh, Noam Chomsky, the book uh, Requiem for the American Dream, he comments on Aristotle's uh, call to to redistribute uh, the wealth of the elites. Um... He, he states, and this is Chomsky, it's of some interest that this debate has a hoary tradition. It goes back to first work on political democracy in classical Greece. The first major book on politics or political systems is Aristotle's Politics, a long study that investigates many different kinds of political systems. He concludes that of all of them, the best is democracy. But then he points out the flaw that Madison, and now he's talking about American history, that Madison pointed out. He wasn't thinking of a country. He was thinking of a city-state of Athens. And remember, his democracy was for free men. But the same was true for Madison. It was free men, no women, and of course, not slaves. Aristotle observed the same thing that Madison did much later. If Athens were a democracy for free men, then the poor would get together and take away the property of the rich. Well, same dilemma but they had opposite solutions. James Madison's solution was to reduce democracy, that is, to organize the system so that power would be in the hands of the wealthy and to fragment the population in many ways so they couldn't get together to organize and take away the power of the rich. Aristotle's solution was the opposite. He proposed that we would nowadays, what we would nowadays call a welfare state. He said, try to reduce inequality. Reduce inequality by public meals and other measures appropriate to the city-state. So same problem, opposite solutions. 
One is reduce inequality, and you won't have this problem. The other is reduce democracy. Well, in those conflicting aspirations, you have the foundation of the American country. And again, that's Requiem for the American Dream, uh, 10 Principles of Concentration of Wealth and Power. It's interesting to me that, that Aristotle and Chomsky and all these guys talking about wealth redistribution, this was very similar to the same reason Jesus was calling for wealth redistribution and, and, and a more egalitarian or distributive justice um, in his own time and place. So Jesus's message was twofold. It was nonviolence to those that are being exploited, and it was wealth re- nonviolent resistance, rather. And it was wealth redistribution to those who were on the other side of society doing the exploitation. And that, that wealth redistribution, it included debt forgiveness. And, and this nonviolence and wealth redistribution, that's the soil of distributive justice and equity from which the fruit of peace or societal health and life, that, that's the soil that grows out of. And this is the narrow path. That, that leads to life, Jesus is saying. And why is the path so narrow? It's narrow simply because it's traversed by so, very so few. Uh, paths are broad or, or narrow, determined by the number of those who travel them. In other words, we too often think that this saying is, is describing a path that few traverse because it's arbitrarily kept narrow. But actually, if more people traversed it, it would grow wider. The path is only narrow at first because so few presently travel it. Isaiah 40, verse 3, In the wilderness prepare a way for the Lord, and make straight in the desert a highway, not a narrow path, but a highway for our God. And then there's this element in this week's saying of before it's too late. There's also a, 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 a kind of a time limit here. It says, When the householder had arisen and locked the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Master, open for us, and he will answer you, I do not know you. It's, it's kind of a, it's too late now. And there is a point of no return that violence and inequality that they reach in societies when those societies can't recover from it. And if Jesus could see his own society getting closer and closer to that point of no return, it would make perfect sense that he would try to warn those who would listen. In many societies, they don't listen. They don't accept what that means. And even Jesus's society didn't heed the wisdom. But how often throughout history, think about it, have have the wealthy voluntarily let go of their power and their resources to share with those who have less. Even so, Aristotle saw this vision for Athens. It's the same vision, or similar vision at least, that Jesus saw for Jerusalem. Aristotle saw it for Athens, and some in his day decried the inequalities in Athens that that Rome also faced in its last days. This wasn't just the end of Athens. It was the reason Rome came to an end as well. And we see Jesus three decades before Jerusalem would be turned to Gehenna, trying to turn the tide within first century Palestine too. And, and today, the poets and the prophets are still crying out. And there's much in this week saying, enter through the narrow door, for many will seek to enter and few are those who enter through it. When the householder has arisen and locked the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, master, open for us and he will answer you. I do not know you. Then you will begin saying, we ate in your presence and drank, and it was in our streets that you taught. And he will say to you, I do not know you. Get away from me, you who do lawlessness. Heart group application this week. The last phrase in our saying this week is that you who do lawlessness. 
that reveals that in Jesus's call for debt forgiveness and wealth redistribution, he was calling the people to follow those sections of the Torah that called for the exact same thing. In Deuteronomy 15, we find it stated clearly that if inequality were strictly guarded against, that there, there, it says in verse 4, there need be no poor people among you. So this week, I want you as a group, uh, for your heart group, I want you to, sh- to watch a short documentary together. And then I want you to engage and, and, and exercise in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke in the book of Acts. Number one, the documentary that I'd like you to watch is Requiem for the American Dream. You can find it on Netflix, um, and hopefully someone in the, in the heart group is a subscriber to, to the Netflix service. But number two, then I want you to find five places in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts where you see examples of either Jesus calling for the redistribution of wealth or Jesus's followers actually heeding Jesus's call and engaging themselves in the redistribution of their surplus wealth. And number three, this last part I think will be the most challenging. What do you envision wealth redistribution looking like today? And and describe what forms this could possibly take within our own contemporary society. Discuss the various descriptions with your group that your group comes up with and how each of you could actually lean into these descriptions like in the book of Acts in your daily lives. In the book of Acts, they didn't wait for society to become a certain way. They started practicing within their community what they wanted society to look like. Here at Renewed Heart Ministries, we believe that this first century Jewish prophet of the poor named Jesus has something to offer us today in our contemporary work of survival, resistance, liberation, restoration, and transformation. And each of us is called together to the work of making our world a safer, just, more compassionate home for everyone. And where this finds you this week, lean into that work and, and know that you're not alone. There's a whole community here that's doing the same thing with you. And it's it's this work that defines what it means to keep living in love. Thanks for checking in with us this week. I'm so glad each one of you is journeying with us. I love each one of you dearly. Also, I want to take an opportunity to thank you who are are supporting the work of Renewed Heart Ministries. If you're not, if you're new to Renewed Heart Ministries, if you're not familiar with who we are, we're a not-for-profit group that's informed by the sayings and teachings of the historical Jewish Jesus of Nazareth, and we're passionate about centering our values and ethics and the experiences of those on the undersides and on the margins of our societies today. And you can find out more about us if you go to Renewed Heart Ministries and click on Who is RHM there at the top left. Again, if if, uh, 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 you'd like to support our work, everything we do here at Renewed Heart Ministries is is done with the purpose of attempting to make these resources as free as possible. And, And to do that, we need the help of people like you. If you'd like to support the work of Renewed Heart Ministries, you can make a one-time gift or you can become one of our, our monthly contributors. You can do that by going to RenewedHeartMinistries.com and clicking on the Donate tab at the top right of our homepage. Or you can just mail your contribution to Renewed Heart Ministries, P.O. Box 1211, Lewisburg, West Virginia, 24901. And while you're at RenewedHeartMinistries.com, make sure you sign up for all of our free resources on our website. And don't forget, we have a free monthly newsletter that actually gets mailed out as well. You can sign up for, and, and all of your support helps. Anything that we receive, 
beyond our annual budget, we will pass on to other not-for-profits. We do it every year, making systemic and, and personal differences in the lives of those less privileged in the, the status quo. And for those of you who are, again, already supporting our work, um, thank you, thank you, thank you. I just can't thank you enough. Uh, again, I'm so glad you're, you're journeying with us through, through this series. And remember, I do. I love each one of you dearly. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week.